Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to the idea that every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Every episode, hosts David Bowden and Seth Stewart work through a biblical text to see how it helps us see and savor Jesus. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Seth, how are you today? Um, Don't have COVID yet. Well, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just fading myself to the fact that I probably will get it at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, I have had a cough, which yeah. is concerning because it is a primary <laughs> symptom of having COVID, but it's not COVID. However... It's concerning yeah. to me that... I mean, your cough's not going to somehow develop into COVID. It's either COVID or it's not. I mean, do we know? Does anybody I, know? Do I, scientists know? Does Trump know? You have to stop. Does somebody know <laughs> what's wrong with me? So much misinformation. <laughs> it's, uh, you just triggered every listener. <laughs> perfect. That's what we needed before we go into Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah, this is the this is a very... Triggering. Or it's just a very... It was a very on-topic introduction of course you know and my, we also severely dated this episode uh yes if you're wondering when we were recording this it's, in the throes of a global pandemic <laughs> at an unspecified time particularly i'm thinking more of the people who will is. come back and October. listen to this like years from now <laughs> like oh that happened. Like, oh right <laughs> there was a pandemic unless of course we all die from the pandemic that would be then yeah nobody will listen to this years no from now. that's true well, this has been an upper of an opening. Because Ezra and Nehemiah are an upper of a closing. They, they, they have some upper moments. They have some upper moments. Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of, mm-hmm. they're getting towards the end of Old Testament history. Yeah, and yeah, getting to, I mean, they're basically the end. Right, so if you are just following the story from Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, Ezra and Nehemiah are the tail end. Like, they're in exile and they come back to Jerusalem and then we're about to get to 400 years of silence before yep. Jesus comes back. So this is, the, yeah, the, really the last narrative touch yeah. that the Old Testament has from a, from a chronology standpoint. Yep, Esther is kind of like... Uh, in this time? In the same time frame. Yep. Uh, Daniel was previous yep. to this time frame. So there's no like historical markers after this point except the book of Malachi. Yeah, which is kind of contemporaneous with the very end of Nehemiah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the end of your Protestant ordering of the Bible if That's you're right. reading in a Protestant Bible. Uh, if you're reading in the Tanakh, Second Chronicles is the end of the Bible, but mm-hmm. uh, those are for different reasons. Yes. Regardless. Uh, uh, so you've said a few times here, Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes. What's going on there? Well, so Ezra and Nehemiah are two books in most people's Bibles, but they're actually one combined work mm-hmm. um, in the original Hebrew. Yes. They were meant to be read together. They were written together, compiled together. Um, yeah, however, and they function literarily together. They have patterns that each other complete. They are they should be read as one unit. Yep. Uh, so therefore, we will be treating Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, kind of like we did First and Second Samuel. Yes. Um, although at times, just for clarity's sake, we might say... So we read about in Ezra or we read about in Nehemiah just so yeah. you know where to find what we're talking about but on uh, you know on as, the, uh, as a general rule 
It's, it's one it's story. One, it's one story, one book. So where are we then in just, so we've said we are in the end of biblical history, yes. but what in, for, what in biblical history is informing us in yes. this particular moment? So some really important things to remember. Let's go back to the monarchy. Oh, we can. Okay. Yeah, we can go. <laughs> we always go back to the garden. So well, let me, let me just keep things simple here. <laughs> let's go back to the monarchy with David and his son Solomon. And then after Solomon's reign, you have the divided kingdom, which we talked about in our Kings podcast. And you have the northern kingdom with 10 tribes and the southern kingdom with two tribes. Um, all their kings are terrible, pretty much. And um, God brings both northern and southern kingdoms into exile through two different world powers. The northern kingdom and the 10 tribes there, which does not include Judah and Jerusalem, the temple, mm -hmm. the northern tribes are taken away by Assyria. And um, Assyria uh, had a, a, a kind of a scorched earth policy when it came to uh, foreign policy. <laughs> they, would, they would just decimate people mm -hmm. and basically try to wipe out your ethnic identity. And, um, and so, as, so as people moved back into the Northern Kingdom, that became known as Samaria. And it was this kind of melting pot of like half Assyrian, half echoes of Judaism. Like they were kind of, kind of like yeah. God's people, but not really. And they, 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 they were very syncretistic. Yeah, syncretistic. Jinx, syncretism jinx. You, do I owe you a You owe me a, 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 a brewed coffee. A brewed coffee, excellent. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Which is why when you get to the New Testament, there's all this tension yes. with the Samaritan people yes. because they kind of through the exile to the people in Jerusalem. They lost their Jewish identity. They lost their Jewish identity. Yeah. And so one of the things that Jesus is pushing up against <laughs> yeah. is like, no, these are one people of God. All people are my people. And right. so historically that's informed because of this, these exiles. Yes, and so that, that's important because these Samaritans, if you will, that's not what they're called here in Ezra Nehemiah, but this group of people are major players in this book. So then um, years later, after the Assyrians perform the Northern exile, Sanballat is called a Samaritan. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank so you. One of the bad guys at the very end. Of yeah. Nehemiah. He's called, identified. He's called. A Samaritan. So there you go. Uh, and then in the Southern kingdom, which is the, where the, the tribe of Judah is, which is very important for Ezra Nehemiah. This is where the Messiah would come. This is the line of David. This is where the temple was Jerusalem. You know, this is the Southern kingdom. They were taken famously into captivity by the battle. Babylonians um, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And um, that's where you get the story of Daniel and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they're taken away. Babylon had a different approach to foreign policy. They kind of wanted to assimilate you, assimilate you into their culture. And they also had a, pr a pretty, uh, yeah, they wanted to assimilate you into the culture. That's yep. why they rename Daniel. Yep. Belshazzar? Uh, Belshazzar. Yeah. Uh, is that, is that is right? right? I, th I think so. Yes. Anyway. Yes. So that, yeah, and they would like have you read their material to become philosophically convinced that Babylon was just better. And like that was their, that was yeah, their tactic. Yeah, Daniel 1, he's like, they bring them into the King's University, into uh, into the King's yeah. University. That's what it says, to learn the language and the literature of Babylon. That's right. They essentially indoctrinated yep. everybody that came in. But at the end of Daniel, we hear that the Babylonian kingdom is going to fall by the hands of the Medes and the Persians. Which happens. Which happens. Happens. And not only did Daniel prophesy that, so did Isaiah. Jeremiah looked forward to this time too. Mm -hmm. And the Persians come especially and take over Babylon. And instead of the the Babylonian king, who was the last Babylonian king? Darius? or, uh, or Darius. Is right. that right? Anyway, the end of Daniel, you have a king there. <laughs> you got a king. You got a king there. And he's replaced. And Cyrus 
it should, if you've read Isaiah, set off some triggers for you. Cyrus is the king of Persia, the prophesied king of Persia, who is called God's Messiah, even in Isaiah. And it was told that Cyrus would set Israel free from their captivity in Babylon and make a way for them to come back into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Mm-hmm. So this and was all prophesied in Isaiah. It was all prophesied in Isaiah. It was prophesied in Jeremiah. Yep. Uh, and and now, uh, so you have the people in Babylon. Um, Belshazzar now, was the last. Belshazzar. Was the last Babylonian king. Okay. And Darius was the first Persian, Persian king. king. Okay, got yes. it. Thank you. And so anyway, so they're in exile. They were in Babylon. Now they're technically in Persia uh, because that's where they rule, or that's who's taken over. And um, what we then see are the efforts of God working behind the scenes to mm-hmm. influence the political leadership of uh, Syria to allow um, this remnant, this long-expected remnant, to and return remnant to just Jerusalem. Means a faithful pocket of people yes. that God will use to reinvigorate the Messianic line and bring about a new Jerusalem and all the hopes that have been in place since Genesis 3. That's right. That and so, the garden yep. would be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's right. And, and so something else to just remember. So we've kind of talked about the landscape of exile. You know, they're in Babylon, which is now Persia and that kind of stuff. Um, but something else to remember is what's the landscape of Jerusalem look like? Like it is a decimated city. Yeah. The, the, the temple was completely burned to the ground. It's been ransacked. People like it, read Lamentations if you want a picture of what Jerusalem looked like. Babies are dying in the streets. Yeah, Jerusalem has been it's it's unincorporated territory. It's like bad news. Nobody's ruling that land. It's been taken over by the Assyrians. Uh, then a transfer happened, and the Babylonians, and then the Persians. And it sounds like essentially like the center of power was just never Israel again mm-hmm. for several. For how long were was Israel in exile for? Um, I mean, it, it's it's debated, it's, but like 70 years is like, like the Jeremiah prophecy. Yes. Yeah. So they've been in exile for... At least 70 years. At least 70 years. Almost, let's just, a 100-ish years. Yeah, sure. And they're, um, like, it's just been left undone, like left uncared for. Yes. Which was prophesied in Deuteronomy, that it the was. land would have its rest and the ground would run wild and animals would move in and that would actually be Sabbath rest for the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the people's sin would no longer inhabit it. But then God would allow them to come back in the land and rebuild what was torn down. So the picture you should have in your mind coming into Ezra and Nehemiah on the back end of exile mm-hmm. is, one, you have a decimated capital city in which people are being allowed to go back into. God, just like Daniel kind of proves, is in control of the kings mm-hmm. And he has stirred up in Ezra. And the first thing we hear is God stirred up Cyrus's heart to send a delegation of Jews back to Israel to rebuild their temple. Now, this wasn't this wasn't him being right. Yahweh follower. So we've talked about the Assyrians' policy Mm -hmm. of uh, of like how they took over. We talked about the Babylonians' policy. The Persians' policy was very interesting, and it plays a big role here in in the sinful motivations of the different kings to allow Israel to go back to 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 their land. They it was their policy that let's let indigenous people live in their lands and worship their gods, pay taxes, and pay taxes because what's happening there is we are going to then allow every indigenous people group to pray to their God to bless the king of Persia. 
So let's get as many gods as we can worshipped properly and and implicated, you know, or or yeah. uh, what's the impr- imprecated or what's the word I'm looking for here? Supplicated? Asked, <laughs> asked. <laughs> let's use that word. <laughs> asked to bless the king of Persia. So yeah. he was like. His goal was to get lots of gods on his side. And so for him, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was just another one of those gods. And he was going to allow the people to go rebuild the temple and then earn favor for his kingdom. Yes. So that's what's happening here. So he, yeah. But so God's he, using that sinful inclination for his own purposes. There's a really good analogy in kind of the way, like that type of pluralism, like mm. this like pagan polytheistic pluralism that existed in ancient uh, Mesopotamia yeah. is kind of paralleled today in the way that China has treated Christianity. Okay. So like when we, I was spent some time in China and Hong Kong and one of the most fascinating things that we learned was like the government controls things fairly tightly, but has allowed Christianity to flourish in some of its major cities because in America, America's a Christian nation and has experienced a whole bunch of financial success. Mm. So some of our friends on the ground is like, yeah, like they allow it to a certain extent because they see in the West that capitalism and Christianity brings about economic success. Like, well, why not just let Christianity flourish to a certain degree so we can be successful like America? Interesting. bizarre yeah but that's exactly what's happening here in this book they're yep. using the gods of other nations to prop up their own nation yeah so that is basically the history that happens that leads us into the opening of ezra Okay, so that's the kind of physical, geographic, geopolitical history happening mm-hmm. in the background of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's also a whole bunch of theology, yeah, theological, theological history, history, that's also informing the book of Ezra yeah. and Nehemiah. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, specifically the prophet Jeremiah uh, as a starting place. So Jeremiah was right before this time and bleeding into this time somewhere. Jeremiah? Yeah, no, he, he died dead. before. He, okay, he, he died. Did. Yeah, he did. But Jeremiah prophesied Mm -hmm. about a time while Israel was in exile that they would return to Jerusalem, that they would rebuild a new Jerusalem, and that while they were in Jerusalem, God would remake their hearts Mm -hmm. in such a way that they would no longer disobey, but all the intuitions of their heart would be to obey God and to obey his Torah, and that God's garden kingdom would be built again in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it would be facilitated by a new covenant. And a new covenant. Yeah. You might know this prophecy more than you think you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, It starts with, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future. This is him talking to people going into exile. So it's like, it's actually kind of a haunting thing because it was going to be like 70 years later that this hope would finally happen. So imagine being a 40 year old being like, hey man, God has plans for you, plans for hope and a future. It's like, yeah, but uh, I'll be 110 and dead. And <laughs> yes. so this was hope for the remnant. And in Ezra chapter one, verse one, it mm-hmm. tells you that you need to have that in your mind. It says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that, and he made a pro- proclamation mm-hmm. throughout the land to send the people in Israel. So Ezra is writing uh, as if, Jeremiah's prophecies are coming true. Yes, because they are. 
Because they are. There's yeah. a huge expectation that what's happening right now is the new covenant, the rebuilding of the new Jerusalem, a new covenant, new hearts, like God is going to live with his people once again. Yes. And so to set all that off and to heighten this moment of God saving us from our enemies, he's bringing us into our land, he's going to display power, he's going to make a new covenant with us and give us his law again. Mm-hmm. This they, this is the Exodus story all over again. And so they, oh, they pull... Right. Um, the authors of Ezra and they Nehemiah. They were enslaved to one nation. Yes. They're going to go out into the wilderness, back into the promised land, <laughs> yes. in which they're going to ha- experience the presence of God in the temple, like Israel did on Mount yep. Sinai. Re- build the temple, which happened temple, in Exodus. And then get a new law. Yes. So it's even That's, just like on yeah. a, the most meta of levels, it sounds a lot like the Exodus story, but what you're saying is like even deeper within the weeds of the story. Even deeper in the weeds of the story, the authors are giving you like literary handholds to make sure you don't miss that theme. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, I could go through all of them, but I mean, even what you've said, the fact that they, that you have a king who is sending him, letting their, letting his people go in a sense. Mm-hmm. And when they go, just as they did out of Egypt, there's this despoiling of the nation. So in Egypt, they leave with a bunch of gold and things mm-hmm. that people just give them. And it's yep. like, why did the inhabitants of Egypt give them all this gold and, and cloth and everything as they were leaving? No one knows. God moved on them to do it. And the same thing happens here. As uh, as Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah all make their journeys to Jerusalem, the kings who send them also fit them with tons of free goods. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 <laughs> basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels, <laughs> all the vessels of gold and, and of silver were 5,400. Right. And so that's what that's there for in, in, from a theological sense. It's is, like, oh, this is a repetition of what happened in Egypt. Yes. When they left slavery, right. they also got a whole bunch yes. of treasure. And if you'll remember... It is those very materials that they took from the Egyptians or were given from the Egyptians that they used to build the tabernacle yep, and the priestly garments. That's exactly what's happening here. The reason why these resources were given to Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah were to rebuild the temple of God. And so it's like, that is the point. <laughs> is this is a new excess so they they even come into you know they come into the land um uh you wonder why there's if as you read through you're going to notice in Ezra and Nehemiah a ton of genealogies now there's other reasons for those that we need to talk about but part of them is as a repetition of like some of the censuses and numbers, numbers yeah so it's mm-hmm. like oh this is like oh just like when they were counted around the, the, the tent exactly. in the wilderness they're being counted here yep and so anyway without getting too much into the weeds the point is obvious it's that God is wanting his people to see this as the new salvation moment of his people. Like mm-hmm. he is saving them again. He's bringing them into the land again. This is the new stake in the ground moment for the history of Israel, a second Exodus, if you will. Yeah. So why do, so question, Yeah. why like either literarily or historically is it important that we know that the Exodus be, is being repeated? Mm. So, well, I think, I think one is because um, if your temple was destroyed and and you, we, we don't really have a parallel for this in the modern mind. Um, but a temple is not like the White House. You know, like people are like, 
how do you build an analog for the temple being destroyed? And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, what if the White House was destroyed? Not the same thing at all. Yeah. We'd build another one. Uh, you can't build another temple in another place, you know, and it's it's just not even the same thing because God must sanction the building of his temple and then he must fill it. And it must be in a specific place that he said it would be there. And so in the in the ancient Near Eastern mind, for a temple to be destroyed is almost like the death of God. It's basically like Yahweh dying. Yeah. And you you no longer have access to him, or at least, if not dying, abandoning you. He's gone. And particularly within Israel, where you only had one place of worship. And with one God. With one God. That's what that implies. Yes. Because yeah. the other gods would have had dozens and dozens, That's thousands right. and thousands of temples. Yep. Uh, but now our access to the vine is gone. It's absolutely gone. Particularly for Hebrew, it's like when God's temple is destroyed, yes. God is dying. And so what, why it's so necessary for them to not only have Jeremiah's prophecy, to know that they're coming back into the land, that could still feel like a very human engine. You know, to be like, well, I guess it's 70 years and we just came and rebuilt some bricks. No, uh, as Ezra and Nehemiah are showing the people of Israel that this is the new exodus and they're helping us see behind the theological scenes at what's happening in the divine realm that God is the one animating all this action, mm-hmm. they're able to see that once again, God is on our side, that the covenant is still valid, that God still loves us, has chosen us, is for our good, is doing something. Yeah. He's not abandoned us even though the temple is gone. Mm-hmm. So like this is like a theological yeah. affirmation to the people of Israel that God is still with them. Uh, I also think like even maybe like on a more visceral or personal level. Like think what was one of the commands that Moses gave to the people of Israel Hmm. to uh, remember the Passover. Yes. And so potentially for a hundred years, they've celebrated a Passover and only ever remembered it. Like, oh, this is why we got let out of the land of Egypt. This is why this happened. This is why this happened. But I could imagine um, being an Israelite child in... Babylon yeah. or in Persia right. thinking like, well, that just doesn't apply to me anymore. Right. The situations are too different. It's like a Christmas story. Cause like in one, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like a Christmas story. <laughs> yeah, it's like, story. oh cool. So like St. Nicholas comes down the chimney and you know, and even like as you got more theologically astute, like there are some major differences between the slavery in Egypt versus the slavery in Babylon. The slavery in Egypt was oppression. Yeah. They just got taken over. This is theological punishment. God is punishing Israel for their disobedience. Yeah. God sent the army, handed them over to this army, and... And they have all these prophets standing against them. Saying, if you're you're not obeying, this is the reason why this is happening. So, So like, they feel cut off. So, they feel cut off, and it's like, okay, yeah, we're enslaved, but, like, maybe that's the end. Yeah. I mean, Jeremiah talks about it as a divorce, right? Right. It's like, uh, you're cut off, like, we're no longer in relationship with one another. That's right. So, I think maybe... Uh, even a more visceral reason why the story of the Exodus needs to be repeated, just to say it a different way, mm-hmm. is like because they didn't believe it applied to them anymore. They thought they were divorced. Right. Yeah. So the reason the Exodus story is being repeated is so that in like contextualized for a new generation is so that this new generation know your sinfulness does not negate the faithfulness of God. Yeah. His salvation is still for you. So let's play it out. Ooh, there'd be this liberation moment as you leave Persia. The, is there a sea parting at any point in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? No, but I, they, was, I think there are some like, you, it would necessitate, oh no, they do. No, oh, oh my gosh, of course there is. There's not a sea parting moment, but there is a geographical term that's used over and over and over again uh, to identify where they are. Yeah. And it's the land beyond the river. Oh, so it's like the... the and the Jordan River is the... Uh, boundary line like the paradigmatic boundary marker for being in or out of the land 
And so to say something is the land beyond the river is to say there is there is the land of Canaan, the promised land, and there is not. And to be able to be identified as people who are in the land beyond the river or outside the land beyond the river is very theologically significant. So the reason the Exodus is being repeated is because these new people need to know that God is still for them despite their disobedience. That's right. Yep. Okay. Uh, last thing, last theological history, is, and we've mentioned it a few times here, um, is uh, the, the idea of why is this land and this space so important? And it goes all the way back. Now we can go back to the Gen- Garden of Genesis? Eden. Yeah. Wait, yeah. All the way back there? We go all the way back um, this time. Man. Because uh, we're doing theological history now. And um, the whole point of creation was for man and God to live together. And uh, to live it, to live in this land temple, like this place where God could be and man could be, and they would work and tend together. And we we were removed from that place because of our sin, just as Israel was removed from the promised land because of their sin. Mm-hmm. But the promised land was ultimately given as uh, the new Eden project to remake the Garden of Eden and be a physical location where God and man could dwell together. But it failed in its first iterance or iteration. Iteration. Um, and we just had a a repeat of the fall in the exile. Uh, just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, you have the Israelites getting kicked out of Canaan. But now with us coming back in with a new Exodus story, the garden project can begin again. Can man live with God once and for all is the question. <laughs> and this is probably where it's most helpful then to pull in the prophets. Mm. Because so while the sto- the history of Ezra and Nehemiah is happening, the books of Haggai Zechariah and Malachi kind of loom in the background Mm -hmm. of everything happening here. So as you kind of like the way you read Kings and like there was like a a narrative moment and then a prophet would show up and speak against the Kings and prophesy about the future. And And it would kind of let you see behind the scenes of what was actually happening in God's eyes with the Kings. And you read it all kind of like boop, 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 like through the book. In Ezra and Nehemiah, you have the narrative in one book and then those prophecies in three other books. Right. And so you kind of almost want to read them on top of one another mm-hmm. and like restack them and rejigger them to get that same king's experience. The point is, what are those prophets prophesying during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? Everything that you just said. Right. Zechariah says that there will be a messianic figure mm-hmm. who will ride in on donkey into Jerusalem and he will make Jerusalem into that new land temple where there's streams of living water rushing from it. Like, like, like. <laughs> I know I'm going to get off topic. Just let me do it for yeah, one yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's funny with Zechariah's prophecy about a king riding in, you know, to the land, uh, like, and he'll enter through this gate and everything. And then when Nehemiah comes in on his one animal to enter through the gate, it says that the gate was so broken that he couldn't enter into it. And anyway, I just thought that right. was funny. It's just yeah. like, Hey, I guess he wasn't Zechariah's dude. <laughs> anyway. Yes. But yes, he's doing that. Haggai is prophesying all kinds of things yeah. about like, we must finish the temple because only the foundation is laid and people are getting discouraged. We got to finish it. God wants you to finish it. Like He wants you, to dwell with you. That's exactly right. So like all those things are happening behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And the reason why all that's kind of happening is because if Ezra and Nehemiah, with the help of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, do not do what they're doing in the book. Hmm. Jesus, the stage is not set for Jesus. So think about this. So it's like, we don't have a Jerusalem anymore. Right. We don't have a land of Israel anymore. We don't have a temple anymore. Yep. We have a small band of people sent by Persia. Right. That's all we have. So when Jesus comes and he talks about the, himself being the temple 
or the land of Jerusalem extending out throughout the rest of the world. None of those prophecies make sense unless what Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to do is successful. That's right. There would be no temple for Jesus to compare himself to if Ezra and, and Zerubbabel hadn't rebuilt the temple. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So like Ezra and Nehemiah are setting the stage for Jesus. Yes. They have to rebuild the walls and the gates for Jesus to walk through them or to ride through them <laughs> yeah. on the donkey. Like, right. Or to be crucified outside the city walls as was prophesied. Yes. Like, they are literally building the stage on which the gospel will take place. Which is exactly what the prophets prophesy. Mm. It's like the reason why Ezra, you must rebuild, or Zerubbabel actually, mm-hmm. you must rebuild the temple, and Ezra, you must teach the Torah, and no, uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you must, must build, build the, the walls, wall. is because when you do these things, you are preparing the new Jerusalem. Yes. You are preparing the way for the new Messiah. Have hope. Your things are not in vain. Your efforts mm-hmm. are not in vain. Like The enemies are great, but God is coming. Yes. Like, that That's the message of the prophets. The irony there, though, is, I think, interesting. And it's that um, I I think if you would have asked Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. We haven't mentioned Zerubbabel. We'll we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, If you would have asked them, what is the point of your efforts? You know, it's so that the Messiah may come. You know, and they kind of view, I think they would have viewed the building of the temple, the construction of the walls, the keeping of the Torah as the way the new kingdom would come. You know, and that, and the way that they would be liberated from their enemies, the way that they would rule and reign on the earth again as God's co-kings and all this stuff. Yep. But the irony is, when Jesus comes, um, he ends up being crucif- being killed outside the city walls. Um, he ends, tearing down he ends up tearing down the temple. The Torah is fulfilled in him, in him because yeah. no one could keep it. And it's like there's this juxtaposition between the efforts of man in Ezra and Nehemiah. And the final efforts of Jesus, like they miss, they misinterpret their actions as bringing the kingdom yes, of God. Yes, but they're preparing the way for the uh-huh. kingdom of God. It's yeah. kind of more like they're more like John the Baptist than Jesus. Jesus himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, I just thought that was an interesting ir- irony. It is ir- ironic, and I mean Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai kind of make you expect that's what's happening. In they do Zechariah, yep. uh, it's uh, I mean they think. It's Nehemiah that rides in on the donkey. Right. Or, like, yeah. And I think Haggai thinks it's Zerubbabel. Yeah. And in Zechariah, again, there's this huge image, which are pictures of uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who was the high priest, mm-hmm. as these like olive trees yes. producing oil, lighting the flame of Israel forever. Uh-huh. If they're stay faithful and depend on the spirit, right. Israel will last forever. So it's like, these are the, these are the messiahs, right? right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You have all these really intense messianic hopes placed on Zerubbabel, uh, Nehemiah, and Ezra. Oh, right. Yes. And if you don't have the the reinstating of Israel as, and Jerusalem as a capital and Israel as a nation, you don't have a place for Jesus to be king in a sense. You (laughs) know, like how can you be a king of the Jews if there was no Jewish nation for him to rule over? Right. Because so like at prop- the end, in Nehemiah, uh, you know, like there, there's a king kind of named at the end there is of, of the book. Anyway, yeah. so I just forgot about the kingdom side so of that. So what's too. happening then? So what, what's the point of all this theological history about yeah. land and temple and all this kind of stuff? Well, and why bring in all the prophets at this moment as well? It's yeah. because all of this communicates and sets the stage for the Messiah to arrive. Yeah. That you... The people existing at this time thought the Messiah would be Zerubbabel. Right. They thought it would be Ezra. They thought it would be Nehemiah. But what they were really doing was preparing the way for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. They were making a nation for the Messiah to rule. They were making a temple 
which could be filled. They were yes. making a um, walls that the Messiah could walk into. And like, rule inside of. And rule inside of. Like, yeah. that's what's happening. Without Ezra and Nehemiah, we really don't have a gospel. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Okay. Well, we've kind of done all the background, the, the, the history, the theological history. Now we need to jump into the book itself. All right, so now let's get into the book and let's talk about the main structure, which I think is really helpful for me. It's super helpful. Uh, you have three cycles mm-hmm. that follow three men sent by three kings. <laughs> yes, accomplishing three different things. Accomplishing three different things. So first, you have Zerubbabel, then you have Ezra, then you have Nehemiah, yeah. and and, res- and respectively, you have Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, Ezra reestablishing the people of God as obedient to the Torah mm-hmm. and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. So you have, I'm going to say it again, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you have temple, people, walls. Yes. That's just helpful. So helpful. <laughs> and that brings you all the way up to uh, chapter eight of Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. And in chapter eight through 12, you kind of have this concluding um, section, yeah. which kind of just rehashes all the obedience that you read about. Yep. It's like a victory lap. It's like a victory there's even, lap. There's even tons of musicians and marches. It's a celebration. It's a, celebra- it's a parade. The, it's when, that's when they celebrate the Feast of Booths, right? I think so, yeah. It's like there's yep. just like, oh, yeah. it's a party. It's we a party like, time. It's happening. Yeah. And then the then yep. the last chapter, 13, uh, kind of undermines everything that you've already read. Um, <laughs> and we'll get to that in just a moment. But like, and it's, it basically says that everything that Zerubbabel Ezra and Nehemiah accomplished is undermined within the space of a few years. Yep. And Nehemiah essentially makes three prayers, one for each era and for each man and for each project, lamenting what's happened and asking God to be merciful. Yes. And that's the way the book ends. Yes. We'll get there. Yeah. But that's uh, the structure. That's the structure. And so what happens? So like, first off, we need, so we have Cyrus who uh, at the very beginning, who was the king prophesied oh, by Isaiah. Yeah. I was going to say, and each one of those three sections- uh-huh is uh, uh, structured the same way within the section. Oh, yes. So what happens is you have a pagan king sending out uh, an edict of people to go to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Then you have opposition while they are in Israel. Yes. And then you have a victory over that opposition. Mm -hmm. So that three-part structure obtains for each of the three parts and each of the three projects. Yes. And each one one ends with, like, repentance, right? And, like... Success. Uh, yeah, success over their enemies and faithfulness to what God had called them to do that moment. Yes, whether it would be temple, mm-hmm. people, or walls. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's very helpful. So really, you're reading the same story in a sense three times, mm-hmm. but obviously it's progressing the narrative and they interrelate in different ways. Uh, there's also some really interesting political correspondence that happens throughout. Yeah, one of the theories about how Ezra was written, mm-hmm. because these are three uh, deputies of the Persian king, it's like these are their reports to the Persian king that they had to send back to him. Like, okay, you sent us with all this materials. We use all those materials for this people. Here's how many people came with us. Here, Persian king, now you know what we did. And then later they came back and then they added in all the theological importance of everything. Don't you know that this report about how many bowls we got actually fulfills the Exodus story for you? That's the way like... Yeah, like taking some of their political correspondence letters and putting them in their memoir 
you know, and yes. being like, and then we we got this letter back, but here's what it meant. Yes. Yeah, it's, it is an interesting way that it could have been. Um, so the first cycle then is Cyrus sending out Zerubbabel mm-hmm. along with uh, several thousand people. Yes, to- so, and these are the ones that the that the spirit of God moves in mm-hmm. that causes them to want to go to the dilapidated city of Jerusalem. Yes. It's not, I mean, this is not a place you would want to go. No, it's you not. Know, it, it, from strictly secular terms. But uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the, the, that word stirred up uh-huh. is used of Cyrus. God stirs up Cyrus' heart to send them. And then yep. Haggai will say that God stirred up the people's heart uh, to go back. Yes. So there's parallels there. And funny story, remember how Jeremiah sets the backdrop for this? Uh-huh. And one of his main prophecies would that Israel be, would be uprooted. Oh, yes. Right? right and yes. then God would replant them. Uh-huh. Zerubbabel means planted <gasps> in Babylon. What? So he, the man planted in Babylon is going to replant Jerusalem. Oh, that's beautiful. So I did not know that. Fun little, that's a fun one. Fun little thing. Uh, so something else interesting other than Zerubbabel's name is Zerubbabel's great, 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 great granddaddy. Uh-huh. Who is? I forgot. David. that's right i forgot because that's important because zachariah picks up on that fact yes and casts um uh, zerubbabel Zerubbabel as the new messianic king who will come in on a donkey and like reinvigorate israel and let their flame last forever yes so as we talked about earlier all these heightened expectations that this was going to be the new Jerusalem and the kingdom was going to come back and everything was going to be fulfilled is heightened even more by the fact that Zerubbabel is David's son. Like he's in the line. If you remember 2 Samuel 7, God promised that someone from David's line would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And it's, oh, it could happen. It could happen. And he's the one who plants. So Zerubbabel goes in, planting, fulfilling Jeremiah, fulfilling messianic prophecies, and immediately he's met with opposition from the people of the land. Yep. Uh, So does that mean, uh, I was like, who are the people of the land? Is that like just like random tribes? Is that Jews who never left? Is that... It's most likely, at least from what I've read, is like the syncretistic Samaritans. Okay. Yes. So anyway, they, they claim that they've been worshiping God all along. Like, right. And he says, no, you haven't because you haven't been doing it the way that is prescribed by the law. And so he actually cast them out and said, you can't help us rebuild the temple because you're unclean. Mm-hmm. And we need clean hands only rebuilding the temple because we're going to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. And so these are probably the syncretistic Samaritans. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. And then what happens, the opposition is in the form of a series of letters. Ooh, a letter writing campaign. A letter writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good Parks and Rec quote. That's a great Parks and Rec quote. <laughs> and what's funny about this letter writing campaign yeah. is that it either foreshadows or looks back to Esther. the story of Esther. Yes! So, what's, so Esther actually happens later on in the narrative. Uh-huh. Uh, so like she's not... Uh, Artaxerxes is right. not in power yet, yep. so uh, this is uh, Cyrus who's in power. Mm-hmm. Probably two kings prior, or, I think it's, or more. I think it's Cyrus, Darius, uh, or Darius, Cyrus. Anyway, regardless, it's not at the same time. We should know our history. We should know a our lo- history better, a little bit better. We're theologians, guys. Histori- <laughs> Historians, just, just not just, our thing. Just, we can't we keep try. up with it. Okay, um, but yes, this is so, a theme in Esther. This is in a theme in Esther, and what happens is that. Um, an edict is written down mm-hmm. uh, that says King Cyrus writes down an edict that or, says the Jews must go back to Israel uh-huh. and they need to uh, rebuild their temple. Yes. Now, when they get to Israel, all these people of the land send a letter back to Persia saying, 
appeal to your records <laughs> because if you knew better, you would know that these people are seditious. Yeah, they always are seeking to overthrow kings and set up their own kingdom, and they're like a wild mule. You can't tame them. You can't tame them, so you better be really careful yep. in what you're doing here. So they send the letter all the way back, and it gets back to Persia. Now, King Cyrus at this point is um, now. I, I I keep getting confused on my king. So I'm like, well, it's confusing as you're digging through your Bible to just I can note this for the for our listeners here that Ezra Nehemiah is not written chronologically. It's written. It's ordered by theology and a message. It's not ordered by chronology. And so, like, you will kind of stumble back and forth between kings and timelines because they're not trying to recount exactly what happened in a in like a sequence of events. They're trying to tell you a theological story. And so well, then that's why you're getting, that's why it's very easy to get tripped up on Kings and what's and everything. funny is then is that that letter that they sent back saying, Hey, haven't you checked the record yet? Actually goes to Xerxes. Yeah, exactly. So it goes to Xerxes <laughs> and Xerxes looks back through the, the records of the court and it's like, Oh yeah, they, they have been a problem in the past. <laughs> so they send an emissary out to investigate the situation. Yeah. They get there, and then Israel writes its own letter <laughs> and says, no, no, go back and appeal to the records of the court, and you'll find that Cyrus told us we could do this. Yeah. And they go back, and they realize, oh, he did. So you guys can go ahead You're and grandfathered in. You're grandfathered in. It's fine. Now, what's funny about that whole opposition and that whole uh, resolution to the opposition is that the story of the book of Esther centers around an appeal to the records of the court. Right. So if you remember back to our Esther podcast or just from the story of Esther, King Xerxes can't sleep one night. Mm -hmm. So he has the records of the court read to him in which he finds out that Mordecai, a Jew, had saved him but not been celebrated for it. Haman comes in expecting to be celebrated himself, and the roles switch, and Haman ends up dying, right. while Mordecai gets ends up getting um, exalted. Right, and there's two edicts going on there. The first edict that Haman sent out was to kill all the Jews, mm -hmm. and then after this turn of events, because of the record of the kings, uh -huh. Mordecai gets to draft a new letter that gets sent out that saves all the Jews. Yep, and... Hey, here's the here's the here's the clincher. So if that doesn't convince you already about these letter writing campaigns, multiple edicts, the center of the book of Esther is this the discovery of a record of the court, um, the the consequence that Haman wrote for oh, the Jews is that they should be impaled on a pole. Right, but he ends up being impaled on the pole that he erects in Esther. In Esther, and yes. here Xerxes writes back to the Samaritans saying, if you try to stop Israel from rebuilding the temple, you will be hung on a pole. Dang. So it's like <laughs> Ezra and Esther are like a, like a dovetailing yeah, together. Yeah, they're talking to each other and here. The, Ezra 1 to 6 is cluing you in on the main way in which the conflict is resolved in Esther. Yes. And Fun I think the fact. purpose of that, and I think why this is important, is because the same point that we've talked about is that's so crucial um, for Ezra and Nehemiah to communicate is also the the point that Esther's trying to communicate. It's that God is working behind the scenes of mm -hmm. of governmental powers. Yeah, like He's actually in control even when it looks like He's not. Right. And think about their geographic location. Yes. Esther is in the center of Persian power. Israel is in their center of. Power, but it's all but, dilapidated. But it's dilapidated. So will God be faithful in the center of Persian power? Mm. Will he be faithful when there is no capital city in Jerusalem? Yes. Yes. 
He will use court documents and letters to vindicate his people, Mm. put his people in place, and destroy his enemies. From north to south, from pole to pole, God is faithful. That's cool. That's cool. I like that. It's so cool. So uh, at at the end of Zerubbabel's cycle, the um, foundation of the temple is dedicated, right? That's right. Yep. And the Passover is celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big moment of national repentance. Uh, for what God is doing. Right. And then the cycle starts over in chapter seven of Ezra. And then we are introduced to the King Artaxerxes and we meet Ezra and it happens again. He uh-huh. is he's sent with an edict and with resources and he goes into the land to do something different this time. This time he's yeah. specifically going to revive the worship of God and the obedience of his people through the Torah. Because Ezra was a teacher of the law. Yeah, so he was a legal yeah. Torah scholar. Yeah, and and it's debated what that means mm-hmm. uh, because if it was a if this was a Persian term, teacher of the law, uh, I read in in one uh, commentary that 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 phrase might have been a Persian nomenclature, like a, a Persian oh, okay. term for like what they called those people who you know knew the 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 documents oh, of the Jews. They called them like lawyers. Yeah, like, they're like, like those are the Jewish lawyers. Oh, you know, but it, like it. maybe probably a Torah scholar, right? But probably also the one that might have been at the right hand of the king to be like if if Persians were were concerned with pleasing as many deities as possible, then these different teachers of the law for different uh deities would be brought in to say, "Okay, how do we please Israel's God?" Oh, you need to do these things. Oh, well, the temple's very important. Then you better go and make sure they're doing it the right way. Yeah. I don't want that god to be mad at me. And so it, it was. It, yes, he was a Torah scholar, but he was also like uh, in the political system of Persia too, um, being like a liaison between uh, Yahweh's interests and the interests of Persia's throne. Yeah, it's interesting. Super interesting. Yeah. So he goes out there and he essentially says he does what. Artaxerxes, Xerxes commands him to do. He goes out and he teaches the law. He and he institutes this um, kind of like renewal and mm-hmm. revival within Israel. He reads the law to them and he says, "We must obey it if we are going to be God's people and God's presence is going to dwell here, and that we will see the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah come true." Right. And the people respond positively. Yeah. They say, "We agree." And the opposition that comes in this form isn't from the outside, it's from, it's internally. Mm-hmm. As they're having this like moment of like corporate national renewal and revival, 100 people um, who had returned from uh, uh, Persia, oh, Persia yeah. have intermarried with the women uh, in the land Like of the Samaria. Moabites. The Moabites that... Ammonites, yeah. the, the people in the land. The reason why this is an issue is because in the law, Deuteronomy, uh, hold on, I wrote you got it, it written so, down. Yeah, I got it written down. You. You're so prepared. I'm so prepared. If I knew what page it was on, I'd be even more prepared. <laughs> um, I don't know what page it's on. <laughs> in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, I think it's in the teens. Um, <laughs> helpful. So helpful. Just read ten chapters of yeah, Deuteronomy. It's and you'll fine. Find It'll it. make you a better, a better Christian. Yeah, because <laughs> that's the way it works. That's how it works. You have to earn uh, that. <laughs> yeah, I literally can't. It's fine. Right, in Deuteronomy, we're, we're told that it's against the law to twenty-three chapter three. It wasn't in the teens. It wasn't in the teens. You would have saved them some reading. <laughs> saved them some reading. Twenty-three chapter three. Um, it says that you cannot marry with people who worship other gods. Mm-hmm. Now, this wasn't like this wasn't racist. This, right. this was protecting 
the fidelity of worship to Yahweh alone. Right. We know this isn't racist because Moabites are sometimes included in the people of God if they're faithful to Yahweh alone. Right. David came from a Moabite. King David came from a Moabite. You might know her. The Rahab. As, as Ruth. Or Ruth. Like, yeah, as Ruth. Like, yeah. It's, so anyway. What's happening here is the history has been when Israel marries foreign wives, yep. they worship the wives where their wives came from. That's right. And the the ultimate example of this was Solomon, mm-hmm. who his downfall was whenever he started to love the gods of his foreign wives. Yep. And Solomon's even mentioned in yep. Ezra Nehemiah. And the phrase foreign wives is kind of unique to the Solomon story. Mm-hmm. And it's primarily the phrase used here yes. to describe what happened. So like, guys, if we want the kingdom to come back, if we want God to dwell with us again, make his covenant with us again, we must not commit the same sins that led to the divided kingdom and exile that started with Solomon place. in the first place. And if you and if you read what's happening in Malachi, Malachi says it's not just that they're marrying foreign women, mm. it's that they're also divorcing their own brides. Oh. So part of what he's saying is that you've divorced your Israelite bride so that you can marry this pagan wife and then you're going to go ahead and you're going to worship, worship her gods. Worship her gods, divorce and idolatry combined. Mm which is, again, a major theme through the prophet Jeremiah. Yeah, that's right. So what these people realize is that their marriages are essentially invalid. Mm. They have to repent of their marriages, divorce themselves from those marriages, and recommit themselves to worship of Yahweh alone. Yeah. And in the story, this is seen as this moment of deep, costly repentance. Yes. They are choosing fidelity to Yahweh over their preference for multiple wives or discarding their own wife for the sake of a new wife with a better God. Like uh-huh. it's a moment of deep sacrifice and deep cost and deep pain mm-hmm. for those the, the families and the women That's right. that were um, divorced, yep. uh, which is an issue. And we'll talk about that when mm. we were in the podcast. But for the moment, the point is, this is a profound example of faith in God. Yeah. They're, they're choosing no longer to do this. Oh, I'll divorce you and I'll, then I'll marry you because I like your God better. Or I think whatever it is, like, that's not happening anymore. Right. That And they're choosing to even submit their sexuality yep. to God himself. Right. And like this goes back to the, the big biblical picture of marriage being a picture of God's relationship with us. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ephesians 5 picks up on that, how yep. uh, a husband and a wife picture Christ's love for his church. And so they are embodying that. They're like, oh, I am misrepresenting God's covenant with us um, and sinning because yep. I'm breaking the law. And as these men leave their um, foreign wives, they are in a sense um, remarrying not only maybe their Israelite wife, but Re- reattaching themselves to the covenant between them and God. Yes. Uh, and they're like, coming back. Yeah, it's like in the same way that we have like this pretty visceral disgust to Solomon's thousand wives. Yes. And the idea of divorcing one woman just to get in bed with another woman. Mm. It's like to say no to all that is a deep recommitment to God and the spouse as as your spouse and your old spouse yeah. at the same time. It is time. interesting to see like, you know, the thousands of the thousands of wives, or the thousand wives or 700 wives or whatever that Solomon had, uh, that Israel is now kind of um, publicly repenting hundreds of years later for the sins of Solomon. Solomon never did this. Solomon never repented. Oh, right. You he know, did, but yeah. now Israel is repenting. And it's like, is the clock 
going backwards? Yep. Are we getting? And because if you went right back before the story of Solomon's fall, what would you get? You'd get an enthroned king of David, yep, ruling and reigning at the peak of Israel's power. Mm-hmm. Are we on our way back to there? Yeah, you know, and like, and what what else happens right before he marries the foreign women? He builds the temple, like. Yep. It's They're all, building the temple. It's like, are we getting back to the golden age of Israel? Like, yeah. it looks like it. It's a yeah. big deal. There's even this, so this idea of like, okay, all the sin that's marked their past is being done away with is even repeated in one of Zechariah's prophecies. So whenever Zerubbabel went in, he went with another man named Joshua, mm-hmm. who was his high priest. Right. And Zechariah has an, a vision, a dream about Joshua, the high priest, covered in like, filthy clothes. Oh, yes. And then God takes those dirty clothes off of him and clothes him in a brand brand new garments and a new pure white turban. Yeah. And it's a symbolic of what's happening on the ground in Israel. They're doing away with the old idolatrous ways, their old, like, um, yep. their old, their, everything else that used to happen, they're right. doing away with it in their new people. Yeah. It's a different type of thing happening. Yeah. Or so we hope. So we hope. So that's the end, and then that is resolved. Yep. And then the new cycle happens with Nehemiah. Yep, Nehemiah 1, the same thing happens again. We get to meet a new king, um, and uh, this time, Nehemiah, we get to hear a little bit more of his internal struggle. Uh, we get to know him a little bit better. He's uh, beat up by the state of Jerusalem and some of the failed attempts at uh, revigorating you know, reinvigorating mm-hmm. the temple and the city. He hears about the state of the walls in Jerusalem, that they're just dilapidated. And he is so crushed by it that he just prays, his, pours his heart out to God and says, like, what should we do? And God ends up doing what he's done before with Zerubbabel and Ezra. And he moves on the heart of the king to allow and equip Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. So again, we have the same thing happening. That's exactly right. Yep. And then, so Nehemiah is sent to Jerusalem specifically to do it. And the opposition here is from a man named Sanballat, who mm-hmm. is a Samaritan. Right. And essentially, their tactic is to make a conspiracy mm-hmm. to spread fake news about <laughs> about uh, Nehemiah. That one, he's a coward. And two... Um, that they're seditious. Mm. So they, they try to send the the lie up the chain that Nehemiah is plotting a takeover of the Persian throne. Mm-hmm. And they say, you're trying to set yourself up as king. Now, what's interesting about that is that that did fit Zerubbabel. There were dreams and right. visions about Zerubbabel with a crown on his head and like he was from the line of David. But Nehemiah kind of just responds with the blunt facts. He's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> That's not what's going on. And he there's this a whole campaign going back and forth and essentially it's a, a big conspiracy to prove that Nehemiah is seditious which he's not right and he proves that by sending letters to the king and doing this whole thing right. over again the other thing they try to do is they try to get him to just abandon the project mm-hmm. so they kind of mock him send him letters threaten him to stop the project and Nehemiah kind of meets all that with force mm. he starts building the wall knowing that there's armies surrounded around them with one man holding a spear and one man laying bricks and they swap every now and again. So somebody's always guarding and someone's always building. Yep. So they, they, they can see the enemy army camps, but they're always building even under threat of war. Yep. That's happening. At one point, they try to make Nehemiah run away by sending a false prophet. Oh, right. He was saying, hey, Nehemiah, I'm a prophet of God. So they send a pro- false prophet. Like, I'm a prophet of God. If you hide in the temple, God will protect you from Sanballat's encroaching armies. Mm. And so, 
And then Nehemiah quickly says, you're not from God. You're from San Bal. He's like, I am. And he runs away. <laughs> so there's like all, it's a weird campaign. There's not like a military battle. Yeah. It's all, it's an information war about how to undermine Nehemiah's leadership. Mm. But every time they try to threaten him or to scare him away, he meets it with faithfulness and he eventually builds the wall despite the threat that's around him the whole time. Right. And so that's, it, it kind of ends again with the wall being built, right? Yep. Walls built and uh, the, the city's built. So they have a temple restored. Yep. People obeying the Torah. Yep. The walls rebuilt. Right. This and, is yep. the moment we've been waiting for. And then we get and we'll, we get to uh, Nehemiah 8. And like you said earlier, we get this recap uh, and the celebration before a surprising downfall, which I guess we'll look at in, here in a second. So, 8 through 12 mm-hmm. is a recapitulation, a retelling, a repeat of all the covenant faithfulness that Israel's done. Yep. They built the temple. They celebrated the feast. Ezra they, reads the law. Ezra reads the law. They're saying no to their sin. They're publicly confessing in front of everyone. The wall has been built. They're together. Is this the time for the new Messiah to come? Yeah. And there's all these genealogies uh, from the line of Judah and the line of the Levites. So it's like, we've got the line of David. We've got the priests. Let's go. This is the moment yeah. that God will, is Haggai's prophecy is going to come true. Yeah. Our Zechariah's prophecy is going to come true. Our Malachi's prophecy is going to come true. Yeah. And there's like bands in the street that have been trained in the ways of David, the musician. And it's just like, it's so heightened. It's so crazy. Heightened. Yeah. And Nehemiah 13 begins wah, wah. with Nehemiah <laughs> being called back to Persia mm-hmm. for a period of time. So remember, so we didn't even mention this, but Nehemiah is actually the cupbearer of the king. Yep. So he's this pretty high official in the Persian king's yep. courtroom. And so he was allowed for a period of time to go to Israel, but had to come back for a period for yep. a section. And now he's back. But when he comes back, he goes and reviews everything that was undergo that was underway when he left. Yep. The the people, the temple, and the walls. And he finds every single one of the things that was instituted when he left ransacked. That's right. The uh, The temple is being wrongfully inhabited, not by God, but by a dude. By Sanballat's <laughs> nephew. <laughs> That's even uh, worse. Right. So it's like, so the so temple he, yeah, is being defiled. Yeah, so he kicks him out. He finds that people are, are disobeying the Sabbath, but not mm-hmm. only they're using his gate his wall to bring in foreign goods on the Sabbath, breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So it's just like insult to injury. Yep. And then the people are breaking the law by dis like uh uh what's the word like disenfranchising is that the word? It's like they're taking advantage of the poor. Oh right, yes. They and do. they're breaking the Sabbath. And they're re- and they're intermarrying again with the foreign and women. Again. Intermarrying with, yeah. With so it's like, women. dang it! Didn't so, we just unwork all of this? Yeah. So everything that Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah set up in a series of three prayers and three movements in the last chapter is all undone. Right, which all, follows the three people who set them up. That's yep. exactly right. And the end of each prayer is, uh, remember me, God. Mm. So Nehemiah thirteen fourteen, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done because for the house of my God and for his service. That's right. And so then, every time after... Nehemiah notices what's gone wrong. He takes extreme action to remedy it. Mm-hmm. He then asks God to remember his faithfulness. But why does he, why, why 
Why that prayer? Well, let me let me read the other two. Oh, okay. It's helpful. Yep, yep. Oh, and it's just the Sabbath here. Part of the internal about uh, the problem with Ezra was that they were they were hurting the poor. That's a different section. Oh, okay. Here yep. it's the Sabbath breaking. Yes. So after he addresses the Sabbath breaking and bars people from selling and buying yep. on the Sabbath, he says, "Remember me this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love." Covenant love, loyal love. And then finally, remember me, oh my God, for my good. Those are the last words of the book. Remember me and what I've done. So it's a pretty hearty anti-climax. Remember me, God, for our good. For good. For just for good. And the reason why I think he's doing that Mm. is that he's asking God to remember his faithfulness more than he remembers Israel's sin. Yeah. He's acting as Israel's last leader. Yeah, and representative. Last representative. And he's saying, God, as Israel's last representative, before the Torah ends, mm-hmm. or the, the, the Old, Testament, the Old ends. Testament ends, he's saying, remember my faithfulness, not our people's sin. Yeah. And that's how the history yeah. of Israel ends, mm. with an appeal for to remember the faithfulness of one for the sake of the many. Yeah. And I don't really see a more clear picture of what Jesus is accomplishing for us. Yep. We have Jesus. He never says, remember me for my good so that the people will go free. But that's yep. exactly what he does on the cross. Like, yep. And we're told in the epistles when they reflect on what Jesus did, that one would die on behalf of the many. The the high priest at the time Jesus was crucified says, it is good that one man die for the sins of many. That's right. So Jesus is the final Nehemiah mm-hmm. who does what Nehemiah couldn't do. Nehemiah lamenting at the state of Israel says, remember my faithfulness and do good to my people. Jesus says, God, remember my faithfulness and do good to my, your people. That's right. Yeah, because over and over again throughout the Old Testament story, people do this. Uh, Abraham tries to save Sodom and Gomorrah by his righteousness mm-hmm. and it doesn't work yep moses intercedes for the people at the golden calf and it kind of works but thousands still die for their sin mm-hmm. you know this happens again and again representative headship you know uh aaron tries to stand between the plague and the people and it stops right. but not after taking tons of lives and nehemiah again will yeah. stand between uh the plagues and the people in a sense here and ask god to remember his faithfulness yeah. but it doesn't work like, yeah, there's a double-edged sword. I, I was just thinking as you were talking, like it's kind of crazy. It's like sometimes I don't want one to stand in for the many. Okay, when like back in Joshua, yeah. when like Achan disobeys, but oh. everybody gets punished for it. So right, I don't like the idea of representation there. Oh, right, because like I didn't do it. Why am I being punished why, why, for something that yeah. guy did? Um, but when it's prayed like Nehemiah does it, mm. I want that. I want one person to stand in for the many. Like I want somebody to like take responsibility for my issues and try to solve them for me. Yeah. And I want God to accept that prayer on my behalf. And Jesus does that for us. He boldly goes before God <laughs> and he intercedes for us. He prays for us in this great tradition of people like Moses and Joshua and Nehemiah. Yeah. And he says, God, remember my faithfulness over the sinfulness of these people. I used to kind of clumsily say it to my youth group a long time ago. It's like, what Jesus is praying for us in that like John 17, high, like priestly, high prayer. Pre- priestly moment is that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He right. doesn't look at our history, our mistakes, our sins. He sees Jesus's life. 
He sees Jesus feeding the 5,000 and picking women up off the ground who've been chronically ill. Mm. He sees Jesus perfectly obeying his mother. He sees Jesus like fighting for the cause of the poor, making friends with prostitutes and saving tax collectors. What Jesus is doing in that moment is he's praying that God would see us, but remember Jesus's words, Jesus's actions, Jesus's life. And I'm like, that's yeah, what's happening. That's that what Jesus happening. does for us. Yeah. I, I'm also thinking of another way Jesus is the new Nehemiah, uh, not only as a representative, but also in the way that he makes us obey. Because part of the Jeremiah prophecy that we talked about at the beginning of this episode is that God would give us new hearts that could actually obey so that whenever the leader left and the city was just inhabited by people like us, we wouldn't ruin everything that he set up. And that's what Jesus does. Not only does he represent his people and, um, you know, earn them something that they don't deserve, you know. Right. He also turns them into people who can actually obey. He gives us his spirit. And yeah. so, like, we actually won't defile the temple of our bodies anymore. We actually, like, will maintain the cause of the law. You know, we actually will obey God because the spirit of Jesus, who was obedient, lives in us. He doesn't come to us like Nehemiah did to the people of Israel. And okay, if you're bringing in goods through the gate on the Sabbath, let me just shut the gate and put armed guards there and you can't do it anymore. I'm going to beat you with a stick until you obey. Yeah. Instead, Jesus turns us into people who want to obey, who can obey. He changes our hearts. Yeah. It's, like, it's a better Nehemiah. <laughs> in Haggai, there's this uh, explanation for why um, Israel is failing to do what it they want. And mm-hmm. he, he goes all the way back to Leviticus and he says, if you touch something dead, you become impure, right? He gives them a test on whether or not they've understood yeah. the law. Like, yeah, yeah, you become impure. It's like, yeah. okay, so okay. if you're impure and then you touch some clean food. Does it become pure? They're like, he's like, they're, no, like it becomes clean. I was like, okay, good. You understand the Torah. He's like, what you're doing in the temple is that you have touched unclean things with your hands, your heart, and your mind. Yeah. And then you're coming into this holy place and you're touching it. What do you think that's going to do to the temple? It's going to defile it. Right. And they're like, okay, that's what you're doing. Stop yeah. that. <laughs> like purify yourself. Yeah. Depend on the spirit and that won't happen anymore. Right. And God's presence will dwell with you. What you're saying is Jesus purifies us in that moment. He gives us new hearts. He cleans us so that when we touch things, they become pure, not dirty anymore. Which is like ties in to the theme of the land and the Garden of Eden, that it's like we are no longer defiling the world around us, you know, and like like causing reason for God to tear things down. Instead, we are planting and we are rebuilding. And like, I think we are always in the role as Christians of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Christians should always be in the business of rebuilding God's world and God's kingdom. Like we should be erecting temples and walls and, and, and having the law this, on our like, lips. Deep hope that when we put our hands to the ground, it actually purifies the ground. Yes. It actually does something good and right. valuable in the ground. And I think there's something to be said about like the corporate nature of this too. Mm. Cause like we're talking about Israel as a whole and like, um, yes, Nehemiah is the leader, Ezra is the leader, but it's like, I think when I think about, it's like, it's back to the Achan thing. Mm. It's like one man's sin. Well, that's, I, I'm not like him. Right. And normally it's like, man, the world is crazy. But I'm fine. Oh, right. Right, and I'm and I don't implicate myself in the craziness of the world. Right. And when, Man, I, can you believe sweat, sweatshops are a thing? I right. mean, yeah, I got my jeans from, but like that's one purchase. That's just it, one, it's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and like we have like little justifications for yeah. why the world is crazy, but we're okay. But we're fine. Yeah. And so what I love that that this 
corporate picture that we have here is that normally we kind of assume that the world will just continually get worse. Mm. The world is crazy, but I'm fine, but I can't do anything about it. So the world's just going to continue to get defiled and continue to get dirty by people putting their hands on it. The more sweat, the more people, more capitalist, greedy people, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But what Jesus does is like he makes the corporate Christian. Oh, right. The body of Christ. The body of Christ, that whatever their hands touches works in reverse. Right. Like we're constantly pushing up the ball, the ball up the field in the kingdom of God. Right. We're Co- like, like we're turning the clock back to Eden. Yes. Yeah. Like by default, like by default, the world gets crazier and worse. Mm. And I assume I'm not a part of it. But with the church in it. With the church in a it. A little like, leaven leavens the whole lump. And I'm always a part of it. Yes. Like I assume I'm not a part of it and it gets worse. Now I am a part of it yeah. regardless of what I do as I depend on the spirit yeah. of the Lord. That's what the new kingdom Jesus brought does. Mm-hmm. It reworks the clock as Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah tried to do, but it actually works. And it works as a corporate body living as salt and light in the world. Yep. Um, that's amazing. And uh, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, like, and like not to forget about the Exodus, but yes. like. Jesus is our new Exodus moment. Absolutely right. He does a lot of the things Ezra and Nehemiah did. Ezra and Nehemiah literarily pulled on themes of the Exodus so that we would know that God was still with us and he was forming a new covenant. But that new covenant never came. But in Jesus, he does the same thing. He pulls on literary threads of the Exodus, which we've talked about many times on this podcast, yes. in order to show us that God is still with us and he actually does make the new covenant of his blood yeah. and his spirit dwells in us and remakes our hearts. In like, the same way that the Exodus story was recontextualized for a new generation that was vastly more complex and yeah. disobeyed, Jesus recontextualized the Exodus story for people who were not even Jewish. Right. Too. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, he says, no, we the salvation from slavery that happened in Israel now happens for you when you go into the waters of baptism. Mm -hmm. Every person that goes in a tub anywhere, I baptize them with my spirit so they might be free from slavery and live a life in my kingdom. Yeah, after Jesus is baptized, goes into the wilderness uh, and goes into the wilderness to be tempted, the next place he goes is in Samaria. Yeah. Like he goes right. to the nations he first. Goes to the nations first. Anyway, it's very interesting. The other thing is um, with the 70 years prophecy of Jeremiah, something interesting uh, to talk about here is while Ezra and Nehemiah thought this was the time for the kingdom to be rebuilt, we know by reading the end of Daniel that it wasn't 70 years, but 70 times seven years. Yeah. And that whole point is that no, the time of Israel's exile is not up yet. It's not, the punishment has not been completed yet. So yes, people are going to go back to the land, but it's going to take another 400 plus years to actually uh, have the Messiah come. And that's when Jesus does come. Historically. Historically. Like, like, mean, it's kind of like tracks. So it's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah. Uh, but whether or not it lines up the dates or not, I don't think the number is what matters there, but more of like the symbol of 70 times seven, that yeah. it, the perfect fulfillment of God's perfect judgment was not over in just 70 years. Yeah. Um, and so, but when Jesus does come, he actually comes to the fullness of time and actually does finally fulfill um, the prophecies of Jeremiah 31, 32, 29, you know, uh, that Ezra and Nehemiah anticipated, yep. he he brings fully. He actually gives us new hearts, gives us the new covenant, um, actually does bring us out of exile, not only in a geopolitical way, 
but out of the exile that we've always had from his presence. Like we've always been exiled from the Garden of Eden. It's not about getting back to a plot of land. It's about being able to be with God again. And what better way to be with God than to have him dwell inside us, not to rebuild a new physical temple, but to be made living temples in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Like that is the good news of Jesus, that he rebuilds the temple, not as a place that we go to, but into a thing that we are. Like that's what's amazing about the gospel. Um, Anyway, I love that. Um, let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is normally like classic leadership parable type yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, and we've not really talked about Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah as like paradigms of leaders we should be. Partly because I just like, that just doesn't seem... I'm not, tr- I'm not triggered by the text to read it that way. Right. So, but at the same time, it's like most people are leaders in some way whether we're leading our children or the late shift or ourselves, like how does then the message of Ezra and Nehemiah, like, and the good news of Jesus as the better leader, like, let's just like subvert it all for a second. Like, no, no, I want a leadership principle out of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh It's like, no, okay, great. These were good leaders. How does Jesus inform our reading of Ezra and Nehemiah? And how does he transform it? the hopes and expectations we have for our like spheres of influence and leadership. Mm. I mean, I, I mean, my, my first answer that co- comes to my head, one is that's probably not a good question to ask of this text. No, but, but I if I was going to play, let me, yeah. I'll play, yeah. I'll play ball. I think that, uh, we actually, the best way to do, to, to see Jesus in this or to see us as leaders in this and how Jesus as the new and better Nehemiah or whatever, you know, fixes all of it is to see ourselves not as the, like, how can we be like Nehemiah? but how can we be like the people of Israel? Hmm. Because the people of Israel submitted to their leader, experienced radical repentance, obeyed and were faithful, but then they fell, Yeah, you know, because they were trusting in an earthly king and an earthly ruler. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but when we trust in a, a perfect leader, Jesus, who actually is the son of David that Zerubbabel could never be, who actually fulfills the laws Ezra never could, who actually hems us in around the walls of his presence as Nehemiah never could. When we actually trust in him, we are made into servants who can radically repent, generously obey, and be everlastingly faithful. That that the leadership principle to take away from Ezra and Nehemiah, in my opinion, is that Jesus is our leader yeah. and we and he's enabling us to be faithful followers. Which kind of sounds a lot like what Jesus says when he says, do you want to be a leader? Yeah. Then serve. Serve. Be build, humble. Build the wall. Contribute to the temple. Wash feet. Wash feet. Repent. Yeah. Like that's, he, that's what I think. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's helpful. And it's, I, I think you're right. It's like, I don't see leadership as the primary thing to take away from it. It's because, again, like, who's the leader here? God is. He's yeah. stirring up kings and he's stirring up Israel. Like yeah. God is like. And if you'll allow me to be cynical for one minute. Please be cynical. Uh, I think, and I'll, I'll, I say this with kindness, but I think there's also a reason why we exist as spoken gospel is because I think one of the reasons why this text gets preached as a leadership parable is because to preach it any, any other way really takes a lot of work to understand the entire biblical story of how it's the rebuilding of Eden, you know, the reestablishing of the Davidic monarchy, the prophetic hopes of Jeremiah, how Malachi and everybody else relates to that. Like that just takes some work. And um, I just, I, I think like if we could fall in love more with the biblical story, you know, I think we would be less inclined to want to find this as a leadership text. And more as a reason just to worship Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is the good king of the land 
Yes. And when we trust him, we our hearts are changed, the land is restored, our obedience increases, mm-hmm. and we are secure from our enemies. Yep. And but, so anyway, the the good news that I just want to make sure we don't we don't leave on the table here is that this story is finished in Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a new land and new walls and a new temple and a and a new uh, a new book that that's read and like if you want to see what Ezra and Nehemiah were trying to do the good yeah. thing they were trying to do that Jesus actually does read Revelation 21 and 22 when the new heavens and new earth come and we actually do get to dwell with God forever in a garden city with a river of life with a river of life where we don't want wrong things where anymore. our names are written in a book of life that are never blotted out like mm-hmm. Nehemiah's prayer that God will remember him happens for us there, we are remembered forever i haven't thought about that but there's like all these like sensei and like numbers here yes. but it's like there is a book in heaven mm-hmm. and a census with your name on it yep and the tribe of seth and his 10 sons and grandsons <laughs> are here like, yeah oh that's good news right yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah your name is written in the book of life by simply putting your faith in, not in Zerubbabel, but in the final son of David, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's where the story of Ezra and Nehemiah ends, is in the new heavens and the new earth. So guys, that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and that's good news. It's really good news. And we hope, it sounds like good news to you. We hope it is a is a, is a book you can now go to and find some joy in. Um, yeah. This is helpful for you. Leave a comment. Uh, re- leave us a review on iTunes. Is how more people see and enjoy Jesus on the internet. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit that gives all its resources like this podcast away for free because of supporters like you. To help Spoken Gospel in our mission to speak the gospel out of every corner of scripture and view all our free resources, visit SpokenGospel.com.